We want to welcome each of you today to Crossway Christian Church and say that it is good to have you in our midst. And I would remind you that in the chair in front of you, you will find a two-purpose card. One is a guest card for those that this may be their first time here that you would uh, please fill that out so that we can get to know you a little bit better and, and or if you would like more information about knowing us better. And also it is a prayer card for those that have a specific prayer request. And at the close of the service, if you would put those in the offering plate, uh, that would be appreciated. We're continuing this week in our series of looking into the Psalms that speak specifically have a connection with Jesus Christ. And this week I will be speaking on Psalm uh, number 2. And just as a little bit of background about that psalm, it has been said that it could be listed or used as the royal psalm of that of the Davidic kings, a coronation of the kings. That it might have been used to actually bring another king into the line of Israel through David. And then, through my study and what I have seen, the other point is, it is a messianic psalm. That is, specifically giving reference to the Messiah that would come. Jesus Christ. Both are seed in this and there is evidence that it could be either. But I believe that overwhelmingly this psalm speaks directly of the Messiah. My time today will be spent more specifically talking about the Messiah, the one that is coming. Yes, there is allegory uh, used that it could be an earthly king, but more vastly the evidence is that it is of Jesus Christ. As we look at it and, and prepare to read it, I would like to show, point out that there are 12 verses in this psalm and neatly packaged into groups of three. And each time that we see one of those groups of three verses go by, we're going to see a new person speaking. So as we, as we listen to the psalm, hopefully we will see those that are speaking and the message that each one has. So if you would, follow along with me uh, as I read Psalm 2. If you are using a Bible that is in front of you, if you do not have one, uh, underneath on the chair in front of you, you will find uh, a Bible provided. And if you're using that Bible, we will be looking at Psalm 2 found on page 448. Follow along as I read God's Word. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The first thing that we want to see is the rebellion of the earthly kings. We have a narrator speaking and he's telling of two different sides. And on those two sides are those that rebel against God himself and his anointed. Those rulers of that time, the kings, the princes, the governors of areas, they thought that they had to follow nobody. They were everything. They set the rules and laws. They had to answer to nobody. And they themselves not only thought that they were royal, they thought that they were gods. Why would they need to answer to a god? They had gods, but their gods were there to help them to do what they wanted them to do, not for them to do what a God would want them to do. So we see that they are completely in rebellion to the Lord and His anointed. But easily we see in this message that that's not going to work so well. See, we have two sides. We have those that rebel, those that would rebel so much that in the New Testament we're going to see that they thought they could kill the Son of God. That they could come together, bring up a mob-type mentality, use them to do the will that they wanted to, which is to put to death the Son of God. But we see directly that that's not going to work here. See, we want to be on the side of the winners. I think that I've heard many times I'll say to my friend Jerry, what did the Tigers do last night? He'd say, we won. And I think to myself, 
Well, I didn't see him in the dugout. I didn't see Jerry in the uh, bullpen. But it's his team. That's the mentality we have. But we see the psalmist say, this is in vain. It is not going to happen. God will be supreme over any evil against him. Why would anybody, when they know that it's going to fail, that it's going to be in vain, go against that type of force? But that's the side that the rulers, that those that are in rebellion, choose to be on. And what do they not want to have that God can give them? Restraints? A God that would tell them how to live? What they should do? What would make life better for them? How they could serve a holy God? That's what they are rebelling against. So we've seen rebellion. Next we want to receive the response of an almighty God. As I looked at this message and I studied for it, this quickly became the part that I found the most fascinating. Have you seen in the Bible before, specifically where it tells you that God laughs? The response of a mighty God is that he laughs at those that are in rebellion before him. And not only does he do that, but he comes across the next line and it says, he holds them in derision. After I, after I looked that word up and found out it meant contemptuous mirth, it made me think of a friend of mine, Paul. Paul's an attorney. We've been friends for years, and he had this unique ability. He was the only one that I had that I knew that did this to me. Then I met Pastor John. <laughs> and I had to add him to that list. And in recent times, I've had to add my friend Chris Sweet to it also. If I talk to these people within any length of time, they're going to use a word I've never heard before or a word that I don't know the meaning of. But when I came across this derision and what it was saying about God and his laughing and how power is, thinks that evil power thinks that it can stand against him, the example that came to my mind had to be Goliath against David. So if you would, I would ask that you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 240. Quick background says that Goliath was a mighty warrior. He was huge. He was actually a giant. And he was a Philistine. And he was coming against Israel. And Israel was afraid of him. And Goliath was standing out there and he was mocking the God of Israel. And David 
who was at that time God's anointed in the line of kings of Israel, was a shepherd boy. But God's word said that he was young, he was handsome, and whatever ruddy means. But to me that conjures up, if I was going to think about Hollywood type image, I think he was a surfer dude. And he's going to come against Goliath himself. So listen to what Goliath says in derision to David. If you would. Starting in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a young, but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistines said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Can you imagine the contempt that Goliath felt for this little pipsqueak coming before him and think that he could take him on. And he said as he was kind of laughing, I'm going to cut you to pieces and allow the animals and the birds to eat you. That's your fate. That's derision. But here's something we have to understand also. We're talking about a holy God and his derision. Goliath was mean. He was angry. He hated David. But that's not the characteristics of an almighty God. Lately, we have seen and been able to better understand through the work of J.I. Packer in our studies of knowing God some of the attributes of the true God. And I want to read to you what we have learned lately. He's a God of wrath. Not of anger, but of wrath. What does that mean? It says, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignorable thing that human anger so often is. It is instead right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God's attribute is goodness and severity. Goodness, abundant in goodness and truth. This is the quality of generosity. The biblical way of putting this would be to say that God is good to all and in some ways to some in all ways. Severity. The word Paul used in Romans 11.22 means literally cutting off. It denotes God's decisive withdrawal of his goodness from those who have spurned him. Jealousy. A jealous God would say and is, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as literally 
praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. That's us. That's God's derision. And as we look at Goliath, we can only say that he is an explanation of derision, not an example of the nature of a holy God. But God answers and says, I have set my king. That's what he has put in front of the Goliaths of the world. I have set my king. And this king is threefold. He is a king over enemies. Jesus Christ, Lord of all, his own son, is this king. Higher than any ruler, any ruler, any king, so much so that angels are commanded to worship him. No power shall prevail over him. He rules over the wicked by his power and his might. He's also a king, though, of his saints. Those who believe in his redeeming work, he rules in them by his spirit and grace. That's also King Jesus. So you see, he's the king of nations and is the king of saints. One he rules over, one he rules in. But also, Jesus is his father's king. Have you ever thought of that? Jesus is his father's king because he rules for his father. The spiritual kingdom, his saints, is his church. He rules over them. Providential kingdom, he rules over that. The rules, the, excuse me, he rules over the affairs of the world. Everything is given to King Jesus. There is nothing held back. So we have seen rebellion. We have seen God answer in response. Now we see Jesus himself when he, in his response, and that is a revelation of the anointed son. These words are Jesus himself, spoken of him, relayed by Jesus. He said, The Lord said to me, You are my son. This is part of the decree that came from God himself. And that decree started in the Bible at the very beginning of time. God chose to reveal Himself to man. When He came to Adam and Eve and they had the fellowship with Him, He was there with them. But through time and in the evil that man would wage against God, He would not be among them but he would reveal himself to them. Abraham. 
He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. The prophets told of the same thing. That God would reveal Himself. We did not know the plan until the statement was made, it will be through my Son. That is who will be my anointed. No other than Jesus Christ. And I will allow you to have the power over death. Yes, you will come into this world born of a woman, live under the law perfectly, die, but I will give you power over the grave. You will be begotten, the first from the grave. You will be the one that will conquer everything that the devil thought that he could hold against us. Death itself. He will be gotten of all nations. And in that power that is given to, to Jesus himself, he would be able to do anything that there is to wipe out any force or power against him. For time, I did not take the, uh, the quote that Charles Spurgeon himself quoted, but he wanted to let people know that there is no power that will stand against the forces of God and the spreading of his gospel message. In first century Christianity, those rulers and princes that came against him came against Christianity and it was waged at a vicious force at that time. Rulers died deaths that are unspeakable. Family members killed them. They were casualties of war. Diseases came upon them that were so terrible that their physicians wouldn't even come in the room because the stench was so great. They killed themselves. Those that they had said in power killed them. There is no power that will stand in opposition to God. This is the power that Christ has. But at the same time, he's also the God that says to us, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom, the tenderness of that God. We see in the New Testament how loved the Son was by the Father. Different times from heaven would be would come the words, this is my beloved son and I love him. This is my son. Listen to him. So we've seen rebellion, the response, the revelation. And lastly, we see rejoicing. We see rejoicing We see the word used once in the next three verses, but where is there really rejoicing? We're talking about those that rebel against a mighty God. In God's infinite mercy, even those that rebel, 
whether they be a ruler, whether they be a prince, whether they be a pulper, God does not want them to perish. He says, throw away your rebellion. Come to me. And there is still time. You can still come to me. I still want to give you the salvation that's offered in Jesus Christ and him alone. What did he tell him? He said, be wise. Listen to those that are instructing you in my ways. Be warned. Yes, I am a mighty force, but I am a loving God. Serve the Lord with fear. Yes, you will have a reverence for me. I want you to serve me, but my yoke is light. My ways are good. Rejoice with trembling. You will come to know me as Lord and Savior when I take the scales off of your eyes. You will know that I took on the bondage of sin for you. And you will have a love and an adoration for me. You will have a love for the Son. And when you fall at my feet in love and reverence to me, you will take my hand and you'll notice that in my hand is that scar where I was on the cross where the nail went through my hand. And you will kiss it in love. And you will know that it wasn't the nail that held me to the cross, but the will of my Father that sent me that I may do His will to take on and be the propitiation for your sin. And at last he offers the refuge to those that are willing to come to him. He doesn't give up. He's always there waiting for us. There are those that say that at one time, maybe Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were one. And the evidence that they want to use for that is because there was a type of poem used that it would start and end with the same thing. And if you see in 1 and 2, it's verse 1 starts with blessed. Verse 2, I'm sorry, Psalm 2 ends with blessed. We are Christ's God's blessed because of what he has done. Because we have chosen to allow him to do that miracle of faith and reveal himself to us. So what does that mean for us? We've unpacked a psalm. Hopefully we've seen what the psalmist has wanted to say and we can go about our way. If we don't learn from it, if it doesn't mean something to us, we've not taken a complete look at what God's Word is meant to do. And I believe to do that for us today, we must now look what it meant to the first century church. If you would, please turn to Acts for chapter 4. Because what happened then, at that time, I believe, is what we have to see in our own lives and understand that 
application-wise, it has to make a difference in us. This is the background. Peter and John have witnessed the life of Jesus Christ. All that was there. And one of the last things that he, they witnessed was something that just in the last week or so we have kind of a look at a small example of which was Challenger was launched for the last time. And they said that people were there and watched in amazement as it rose into heaven. Can you imagine these men were individuals that watched God return to his heavenly throne? And as, and as Christ himself was leaving, he said to them, Go and baptize the nations, telling them of me, and I will be with you always. So Peter and John had been professing what they knew of Jesus Christ. And they, what they were doing was making this statement. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is who Jesus is. That's what we are saying. We are going to continue to say that. And the powers at that time, the council said, you can't do that anymore. We don't want to hear about Jesus. We killed him. And they said, we can't do that. We're going to continue to say that. So they threatened him. You can't do that. Something bad will happen to you if you can continue to speak the name of Jesus. And I like this part. So they threatened him some more. Well, one of the things that was different at that time, which is what God's Word said, is let them go. They must let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. They could not this time turn the crowd against these men because they saw what Jesus had done, what through the power of Jesus had taken and healed a lame man. He himself even said, I don't know how it happened. These men of God said, it's going to happen, and it did. And then God's Word says, when they were released, they went home, locked themselves in their house, turned to each other and said, let's not do that again and open up that can of worms. No, not at all. It says in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to, to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage? 
and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and sign and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the words of God with boldness. They could not be contained because what they had seen in Christ himself, what he had done for them. And we think to ourselves, I really don't want to invite anybody to church. I'm really not good at witnessing, so I don't do it very much. I don't want to offend anybody. The situation might be such that an individual says to you, we've got an activity planned for Sunday. Come on with us. And you think to yourself, that's, that's the door I've been waiting for. That's the opening that I've wanted with this person because they have bur- I have a burden on my heart for them. I should tell them, no, come with me and come to church because I think that you need Christ in your life. But we shy away from it. And we just say, no, I don't think I can. Or on a more personal basis, For me, the failure came a number of years ago. Not that long ago. It was Burger King. My wife and I were having lunch. I set my food down, and I noticed my friend David. We were high school friends, good friends, lived in the same neighborhood. So I went over to say hi to him. How's it going, Dave? He said, it's getting better. He said, I'm trying to make some changes in my life. He said, I don't gamble anymore. I said, well, that's pretty good. He said, but I haven't been able to lick the booze. And at that moment, I knew that the Spirit was leading me to say to him, Dave, don't quit trying. The Lord has given me power in my life to overcome sin, and he can do the same for you. Jesus Christ can give you the strength one day at a time. Let's get together. I'll talk to you about it. And I didn't. I was quiet. My food was getting cold. It was more important to get back to my wife than to talk to David. It wasn't that many months later that 
Dave was driving home drunk and got in a car accident. Made it home. No longer could deal with his alcoholism. Called his parents and said, this is it. I can't deal with this anymore. And David took his own life. We must understand that if there's no power that can be held and hold back the plans of an almighty God and that he is willing to redeem us and save us from a life of sin, what is it that makes us so afraid to speak his name to those that need him? Today, let our prayer be like those of the first century Christians when Peter and John said, please, Lord, give us that boldness to speak the name of your Son, the Anointed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the power of your word, Lord. We know that for those that are in our midst that have truly had those scales removed from our eyes and the truth of your calling on our lives, allowing us to realize that there's nothing in this life that we can do on our own. to remove that burden of sin, Lord, that you sent your Son, the Anointed One, Christ Jesus. And we thank you for that gift. We thank you for being our Savior, Lord. I pray now that we have lips that are willing to speak those words willingly, boldly, proclaiming the Gospel in its power and Truly, your correctness. Knowing all the time, Lord, that our burden is only that we speak. The power of conversion and being awakened by, from sin, Lord, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, for those that may be in our midst this morning that do not know you yet as Lord and Savior, I pray again, Lord, that you continue to soften their hearts. That they are drawn closer to you, Lord. That we continue as this congregation and body of believers to embrace them, to invite them, to come alongside them, Lord. And all the time, our goal is that they too can know who Christ is. And that special gift of salvation is also free. We thank you again. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.